Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just sang, break thou the bread of life. And when we gather together as your people, Lord Jesus Christ, that is what we do over and over again on mornings like this. Because you were broken for us on the cross. The bread can be broken here in a nourishing, uh, filling, um, powerful way, Lord. And now as we turn to the word, we can be nourished yet again. But if you don't come and break the bread of life by the power of your Holy Spirit, we are adrift. So I, I pray that you would come, for my aim is to preach the gospel by expounding the Bible to the people that you have given me to love. And Lord, you know that I love this church. I love these people. And this is an extreme privilege to open the word. I don't take it for granted. So do, do something remarkable now, Lord. Our love for each other is real. The power of your Holy Spirit to pick up your word through believing faith is just as powerful today as when this text was written. So do something extraordinary now as we talk about strategy in evangelism. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, including this morning, we have only four Sundays remaining in our study of what the Bible says about evangelism. Uh, Three weeks ago, we considered the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all of life. That was my topic before we went on vacation for a couple weeks, that, that Jesus Christ is supreme over all creation. Jesus made all things. Jesus sustains all things. And if anything from all things are going to be redeemed, Jesus is the redeemer of all things. And what this means for us in terms of sharing our faith with unbelievers is that evangelism is not an imposition of our religion on the world. Evangelism is an invitation to reality for the world. It's not an imposition. It's an invitation. And then two weeks ago, Seth preached on the topic of God's sovereignty in evangelism. I'm completely caught up. I heard Seth's sermon in my father-in-law's living room a week and a half ago, and I heard guys just a few days ago. So Seth preached on the sovereignty of God in evangelism. His point was Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 2, where Paul says that God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of his son through us everywhere we go. And that fragrance for some is really good, really good. And for others, it's the exact opposite. Same message, same messenger, but it smells like death. God is sovereign in evangelism. God draws people to Christ. As we're going to see today, God opens doors that we cannot open, nor can people themselves All of that together, you might wonder, is there any responsibility that we should take to share the gospel? And indeed, we should. It's undeniable. Guy's text last week was plain as day from Romans 10. I thought it was so helpful the way that Guy put it as well, that although salvation at the end of the day is of the Lord, we are participants We're participants in a chain of saving grace that must never be broken. 
It must never be broken. The Apostle Paul says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how will we preach unless we are sent? And unless we send each other with the good news? And that brings us to our text this morning. Let's, let's say that you're tracking at this level in our sermon series. Let's say, okay, I believe that evangelism is not an imposition of my religion on the world. It's an invitation to reality. For the world, I believe that God is sovereign, but I do believe that God is, or we are responsible. So the next question might be just, okay, how do we, how do we actually do it? Like when you roll up your sleeves and when it comes right down to it and you're rubbing shoulders with a lost person, what does that look like? Does the New Testament give us any pointers in this direction? Wouldn't an approach be nice? A New Testament tactic? Uh, something practical that we could walk away with to implement this week, tomorrow morning, this afternoon? I think that's what we have. The application is incredibly important here. And I think in Colossians 4 we have that. Uh, we cannot afford to be slipshod or haphazard as it relates to our strategy in evangelism. Because the old adage that's true in so many spheres of life is twice as true for evangelism. If you fail to plan for evangelism, you are planning to fail in evangelism. That's true. You know it's true. If you fail to plan for evangelism, you're planning to fail in evangelism. And Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6 are, I believe, three critical steps, and they're outlined by the Apostle Paul, that every one of us can understand and must implement if we are going to lead people to saving faith in Jesus Christ as a church. These steps are doable, and these steps are essential. So I'll give you all three steps right now, and then we'll work back through them one at a time as we follow the flow of thought of Paul in these few verses. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So first, get on your knees. Get on your knees. Second, move your feet. Move your feet. And third, open your mouth. Open your mouth. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. If you fail to plan for evangelism, you are likely planning to fail in evangelism. So get on your knees, move your feet, open your mouth. Uh, Almost eight years ago, I had the chance to open this text for this congregation in the late fall of 2005, and the sermon was prayer, care, share. It's very similar to that. Very similar to that. So first point, get on your knees. Colossians 4, 2 to 4, the Apostle Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of a Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. The first three verses of our text, they all hang together, and that's why they're going to be 
brought into the first point together. They all hang together because they're all talking about the role of prayer in our desire to be fishers of men. To think that evangelistic fruitfulness will happen without a deep and relentless commitment to prayer is to flatter ourselves and our abilities. We are deluded if we think that apart from persistent and passionate prayer for lost people that we're going to make headway in this thing called evangelism. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. This is what made the early church, the first century church, so very, very powerful. Uh, Acts 1, 13 to 14, we read, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Colossians 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the prayers. It's plural there. Prayers. Acts 6.4, the apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer. Romans 12.12, Paul says, be, be constant in prayer. Philippians 4.6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. To God. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. 1 Timothy 2.1, first of all, I love this, Paul says, first of all, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions be made for all people. So the first century church was, in point of fact, an evangelistically intense and evangelistically fruitful people. And I think an enormous part of their missional effectiveness can be chalked up to their devotion to prayer. Confident of it. Their power as witnesses for Christ came primarily, if not maybe first through prayer. There were other things at work too. I would just commend to you the study of the prayers of the Apostle Paul. If you've never kind of read through the way that Paul prays for his congregations do that. And then don't just read them and study them, but pray them. This is what I do for you guys. I have this Bible reading plan, but then on the back of it, it says pastoral prayers for MEFC, and they're all Paul's prayers. I've been doing it for years. They're good prayers. One example is Romans 10, verse 1. Romans 10.1, Paul is absolutely overwhelmed. He is just completely burdened for the lost people that he knows in his life. He anguishes for lost people. And he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer unto God for them is that they may be saved. Colossians 4 here, we see the same sort of burden, but it's coupled with a strategy. It's not just prayer. How does a person get saved? Paul points us to the answer in verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. There it is. See, what do I pray for lost people? Pray that God would open a door for the word. And Paul loved this phrase too. He loved the idea of the open door. I wonder which church he would have gone to if he went to church in the Twin Cities. An open door. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has opened for me. 
Or in 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Interestingly, he didn't take it. You have to look back to that verse and see why. But he was aware of the door. And we see it here in our text today. This time it's in the form of a prayer request. He's looking for open doors, but he knows that God's the one who kicks them open. He says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. And that's what we got to pray to. That's the application for this point. We must pray for open doors. Like, why do we, why do we need open doors? Why not just go out and share the good news? We need open doors because of what people on the other side of them are doing. Now, I have to give credit where credit is due. I first heard this word picture from my mentor, Lee Eklov, some 10 years ago. And if you've been a part of this church for any length of time and heard me preach and teach on evangelism, you've heard this. How many of you remember the old Warner Brothers Looney Tunes cartoons? Even the new ones. Caleb and I watch them regularly. We're committed. What does somebody do when they're trying to get away from another person? Oftentimes, they run into a room, typically some sort of modest apartment, shabby apartment, and they slam the door. The next thing they do is take that little lock on the knob and it goes, and then the next thing they do is do the deadbolt, and then comes what? The chain. And then somehow a system of intricate locks, right? And that's just the beginning. Next comes what? The bureau against the door, right? Against the door. In comes the desk. The lamp is leaning just so, right? And they're just pushing and hoping that the person doesn't get through on the other side. You know what? That's what lost people are doing on the other side of the gospel. That is why we need to pray for God-opened doors. The human heart is not predisposed or inclined toward the gospel. It's not. Only God can open a door. People on the other side of the door have a vested interest in keeping that door closed. On the other side, they are worshiping idols. They are nursing sin. Please don't be naive or confused about the lostness of people on the other side of the door. John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20 says, Light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light lest his works should be exposed. We have to pray. We have to pray for God to open doors. No one in this church ought to be without a list of five. I hope you've gotten one. Uh, We still have cards on the back table in the fellowship hall. You can grab one. They look like this. This is my list of five. It's not a list of five. It's a list of 16. These guys live all the way up and down Edgewater Drive. I'm praying for each of them every day as I run up and down the trail. Pray for open doors. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes. If you fail to plan for evangelism, you are planning to fail in evangelism. So if you want a strategy, the first step is hit your knees. Get on your knees. Secondly, Move your feet. Move your feet. 
Now, we did pass over verse 4, but we'll come back around to it in point 3 because I think it makes more sense to address it there. We need to consider verse 5 before we get there, though. Uh, The second step in Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired evangelistic strategy is to move your feet. Paul put it this way in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Just parenthetical statement here. If you have a Bible that uses the word walk, you are in for a treat. Take that word walk and find an English concordance and just see what it does throughout the Bible. It is the master metaphor in the Bible for living our lives before God, walking with God, walking in wisdom, walking in the truth, walking in the light. In this case, he says, walk toward outsiders. Move purposefully in your life toward outsiders. Walk toward them, not away from them. And in verse 5, Paul uses the word outsiders to speak of those in our sphere of influence that don't have a saving relationship with Jesus. Outsiders. Sounds kind of cold, doesn't it? Outsiders. Well, it only appears that way. Paul didn't judge outsiders. 1 Corinthians 5, he urges the church in Corinth not to do that. 19th century preacher Alexander McLaren says, this phrase, outsiders, is full of pathos, passion, uh, empathy. It's the kind of language from a man whose heart yearns in the midst of his own security as he thinks of the houseless wanderers in the dark and in the storm. That makes sense because in Galatians 6.10, Paul calls the church the household of faith. It only stands to reason that if you're outside the household of faith, you are outside of the family, you are outside of relationship, you are outside of security and warmth. The people on your list of five are not just unbelievers, they're outsiders. To pick up Paul's image in verse three, they're on the other side of the door. They're outside. Yes, it is a willful, sinful condition. Yes, people have done it to themselves. Yes, they're pressing against the door. That's true, but it's a pitiable condition. And it grieved Paul deeply. So we should get on our knees, but then we should move our feet. And as we move our feet, Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. By and large, they ain't coming to us. They're not coming. I don't know if you see the internet these days. It's not even just Christian blogs. It's, it's all over the secular blogs. The, the, the exodus from the church today, the sense of this. It's a, kind of a cultural topic today. I saw it on CNN just recently. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. The posture that Paul is painting here is not attractional. Not waiting for people to come to him. It's missional. He's going to them. And as we do, pray for open doors that we might declare the mystery of Christ. Paul says, the Bible says, that we can count on God to open some of those doors. It's implicit here in verse 5, that God will create evangelistic opportunity. I think the open door is implied in verse 5. God does open doors. 
I've been nourished by Isaiah 59.1, just the last couple days, where the prophet says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. His ear is not dull, that it cannot hear. Salvation's of the Lord. He hears our prayers for open doors. They please him. He can open doors, and he's strong enough to do it. So walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Move your feet. That phrase is so crucial for us. Making the best use of the time. We don't have a lot of time. Not in view of eternity. This life is a breath. This life is a vapor. So verse 5 here, it says, make the best use of it. One commentator I read uh, paraphrased by saying, exploit the time. Use it to the full. Snap up every opportunity that comes. This relates back to what something Paul said in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. If you were at our CMO this past weekend, Dan Moose hit that. Pray for lost people, eyes wide open, expecting that God's on the move. and He is. He is. Being watchful in it. It's so crucial for us. Pray with eyes wide open. Get on your knees, but be watchful. Be expectant and move your feet. Don't walk away from opportunities with unbelievers. Walk toward them. Create them. And if God opens to you a door for the word, redeem the time. Now, my wife is so good at this. You have to know this. Melissa helps our family to connect with lost people. Her network with outsiders is vast. From the neighborhood to the school, serving in the broader community, connecting with coaches and parents of kids that do extracurriculars with ours. Just yesterday, we spent the entire afternoon on the lake with a dear family on the other side of the door, talking about spiritual things, floating on the bay. But without her intentionality and planning, it doesn't happen. How easy it is not to connect with the lost. How sustained the effort of ours must be to do so. But it's worth it. Aren't you grateful someone connected with you? Intentionally walked toward you. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer quotes a man named C.G. Trumbull, who once said, quote, Whenever I am justified... In choosing my subject of conversation with another, the theme of themes, Christ, shall have prominence between us, so that I may learn of his need, and if possible, meet it. Okay, so you might often ask, when, when is it okay to begin to get serious about the gospel with someone? The answer is, whenever you are justified in choosing your subject with an unbeliever. I would say two things about that. Number one, by virtue of Christ's death on the cross and victorious resurrection, you're justified. He already gave you the green light with the Great Commission. Go. Don't hesitate. Go. But if you're thinking in terms of how do I be sensitive to where someone is at, how what, can the relationship sustain a verbal witness right now, Packer's point is really good. Whenever I'm justified in choosing my subject of conversation with another, we kind of have to have a nose for this. 
Packer says, with some people, you can have such a relationship in five minutes. It's true. Some people are ready. They're ready to talk with you about spiritual things. They bring it up. Others, it takes longer. And it takes wisdom. So walk in wisdom. But if you have to err, don't err on the side of caution. Don't. Walk in wisdom, but walk in wisdom toward outsiders. I think if we have a default, it is toward timidity. It is toward hesitancy. It's toward tentativeness. Don't. Walk in wisdom. Somebody once said, the gospel is only good news as long as it gets there in time. Be wise. Be intentional. Get on your knees. Move your feet. Third, and finally, open your mouth. Open your mouth. Now, I told you we'd get back to touch on verse 4. Let's do that briefly. Verse 4, pray, that's up in verse 3. The pray is up in verse 3. Pray, and here's the request, verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul asked the church in Colossae to pray for him that he would be clear when he proclaims the mystery of Jesus Christ. Why? Because complexity doesn't preach. Simplicity does. What we believe is mystery enough. The Jewish God-man, crucified for sinners, raised bodily on the third day, ascended into heaven, and will return again to judge the living and the dead. It's all true. It's all true. But it's a mystery. Add to that the mystery that I think Paul is talking about in verse 3, which is that Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews, so that folks like us are in on the Jewish Messiah. That's a mystery to Paul. It was the mystery hidden from all ages, but now evident. We believe a mystery. Our faith is a mystery, but we proclaim it. But we don't get any points for simplicity on this side of complexity. I want to share this with you. The first time somebody shared this with me, it was not clear to me, so it didn't work. But somebody once said, I wouldn't give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my right arm for simplicity on this side of complexity. What does he mean? He means, don't soft sell a complicated thing. Is it a mystery that Jesus is God and man? Yes. Is it a mystery that we have one God who eternally exists in three persons? Yes. Is it a mystery that the death of Jesus on the cross has everything to do with my life today? Yes. So, so don't cheapen the mystery. Don't look for simple words before you understand what the mystery is. But once you're on the other side, fight like crazy for simple words to explain that mystery. If you can teach a child the gospel, if you can unfold the Bible to them, that is an extraordinary thing. So don't worry about simplicity on this side of complexity, but if you understand some of the deeps of the gospel, do everything you can not to get the person lost in the deeps. Say it simply. 
Pray for simplicity. God is holy. Man is a sinner. Christ is Savior and Lord and teacher. Repent and believe the good news. That's simplicity. God, man, Christ, response. That's the kind of clarity on the gospel that we've got to have. That's the matter. That's the content of the gospel. And if you're listening to me and understanding of this for the first time, I invite you to come. You don't have to know any more than that. The greatness and holiness of God. You're made in God's image, but you are separated from him by your sins. You deserve everlasting punishment for your sins. Jesus bore your punishment on the cross. He suffered for you. He was crucified and died and buried for you. He's alive today. On the third day, he rose again. And if you want to be at peace with your creator, if you want to know unspeakable joy and be set on the mission to follow him and help others follow him, turn from your sins today. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. If you wonder, I wonder why he's saying this when I came today, because I'm talking to you. Turn from your sins Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the last element we need to look at here is found in verse 6. It also has to do with opening our mouths. Verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Now, a little bit underneath the, the English here. In the original language here, the words so that are not there. I examined all the English translations on this, and I could only find one that didn't put the words so that. Because it looks like to me that somehow the graciousness of our speech contributes to the ability to our understand how to answer people. And I don't think exactly that's the connection that Paul's making. The so that isn't there in the Greek. And so this would be my translation for what it's worth of verse 6. You ought to know how to answer each person. And capital H, how? You ought to know how to answer each person. And can you say the truths about God and us and Jesus and repentant belief? That's great. But do you know how? Do you know with what flavor? Paul here is referring not just to the content of our speech, but to the intent of it. Not just the matter of evangelism, but the manner of it. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 13, that we are the salt of the earth. Be careful with salt, but if we're the salt of the earth, our speech should have some savor to it. It should be tasty. Scholars tell us that when Paul speaks of salty speech here, he's talking about savory, tasty, judiciously chosen words. Winsome, interesting words undeniable language coming from you. Not just content, tone. People taste it, and they like it. This brings people not just to the words of grace, but to the feel of it, to the experience of it. Our friend David Mathis from Bethlehem Baptist Church and Desiring God recently posted an article online called Giving the Gospel Graciously. It's, it's so recent that I don't even have it in my notes. It's right here. So saw it last night. David starts his article by writing, I'm terribly sorry I just evangelized all over you. 
And then he says, that's how we can feel after spewing a stomach full of precious information on an unsuspecting stranger or friend. It can seem like sharing our faith requires shoveling coal into an engine, getting big gears going, building up a serious head of steam to push us over the hump. He said, no wonder we struggle with evangelism. It's a different picture here with the Apostle Paul. It's a lot different. It doesn't have to be that way. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Think about how to answer each person, not just what. Some ideas here. Speak, speak humbly. You have a lot to be humble about. I do too. Take a breath in between sentences. Give people a chance to catch up. You're not just dumping a big load on someone. You can give it in pieces and see how they react and ask them questions. Ask them questions. Enjoy lost people. Jesus thoroughly enjoyed them. Just so you know, where we plan to head in this next season in the life of our church is a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And one thing you're going to see is how much Jesus loves lost people. Just enjoys them. Enjoys being around them. Not threatened by them. The poet Beatrice Cleland once wrote these lines. I love these lines. She writes as an unbeliever, former unbeliever. She says, For me, t'was not the truth you taught, To you, so clear. To me, so dim. But when you came, you brought a sense of him. If you fail to plan for evangelism, you are planning to fail in evangelism. But it doesn't have to be that way. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. You can do this. You can do this today. You can do this this week. Get on your knees. Move your feet. Open your mouth and let the chips fall. Next week, we're going to take a look at the important topic of evangelism and the fear of man. You won't want to miss it. Let's pray. Father, the Bible is complex. It really is. But I thank you for the simplicity of the words. This is not hard to understand. Prayer, care, share. Get on our knees, move our feet, walk toward lost people, open up our mouths, see what happens. Roll the dice. Lord, please, please make us a church that that follows you first, Lord Jesus. Because you've promised to make us fishers of men. At the end of the day, This is about loving the gospel, singing the music of the cross and the empty tomb with every breath of our lives. Help us to turn from sin. Help us to genuinely, thoroughly enjoy you, enjoy your people, and constrained by love, because only love will do it. Help us to walk across the room, walk across the road, walk across the office, And take a chance. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.